0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, page 795 in the Bibles provided for you. We return to our study of these minor prophets. We're in Zechariah, written about 500 years before the birth of Christ. Zechariah, the prophet, is addressing the people of Judah as they return from their exile in Babylon, and they They have forgotten to do first things. They have ceased building their church, the temple, in the center of their city. And it represents that that the Lord is not the center of their lives. Not that they're to worship the church, but the church reminds them. It orders their life in such a way that Christ is the Messiah daily, a reminder that Christ is the center and the first thing, the first priority of their lives. And what he's been doing in these visions, this is the ninth vision, it's a different vision from what we've seen so far, is, is wooing them to that. He's reminding them of all the benefits of the Savior, His power, His advocacy, His protection. And now, He reminds them and reminds us of the benefits of Christ's offices, who He is for us. And our clarity of vision of who He is will determine the clarity with which we live our own lives. So, look with me at Zechariah chapter 6, and we begin reading in verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Josiah is the priest, remember. Take from them, these emissaries from Babylon, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of... Uh, Joshua. I said Josiah is the priest, Josiah was the king. Joshua is the priest, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord." It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halim, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear Jesus say, come unto me and rest. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. In the last decade or so, a new a somewhat new movement. It's not new in its origins, but it's new by title. The new atheism has arisen. It's now beginning to wane. One of its leaders is a man named Bart Ehrman. He's a professor, chair of religious studies, University of North Carolina, New Testament scholar, an expert in the manuscripts of the New Testament. He studied at Wheaton, he studied at Princeton Seminary, and he's rejected the faith. There came a day in his life when he said, I just don't trust the Bible, and because I can't trust the Bible, I can't trust what it says about Jesus, and now he's made his career debunking or a attempting to debunk the Christian faith, specifically Jesus Christ. It's not that he denies that he is a historical figure. He fully uh, affirms that he's a historical figure. He's too intellectual to deny that. What he denies is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is a Savior. He he takes on uh, the old argument that Jesus has to be either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He can't be a good teacher, and also claim all that he claimed for himself. At the same time, he has to be a liar, not telling the truth. He has to be a lunatic, uh, self-delusional, or he has to be who he really says he is. He says there's a fourth alternative, Bart Ehrman argues. The fourth alternative is that he's just legendary. He was a famous teacher, and he gained great traction, and he was a good teacher. And some of these claims made about him being supreme, a supreme authority, well, they were just insertions in the manuscript. He is, he says effectively, I'll grant you, he was a legendary teacher. We should follow some of his teachings. Well, with the rise of new atheism came the rise of intellectual uh, contests or rebuttals to those claims of new atheists, sharp evangelical minds like Tom Gilson who took on uh, Bart Ehrman's uh, thesis directly, and he said, uh, no, he's more than legendary, and he loves to make the point by asking three questions. He he says, I want you to think he will talk to a crowd of people, and he'll say, I want you to to ask yourself to imagine imagine someone who is supremely powerful, outside of the Bible, somebody who is supremely powerful, claims to be, regarded to be, and so people will come up with... Zeus or Mao Zedong or Vladimir Putin, supremely powerful. Now, there's a second question. I want you to think of somebody outside of the Bible, outside of Christianity, outside of the Bible, who is other-oriented, extremely sacrificial, self-sacrificial. Think of somebody like that. And they'll frequently come up with Mother Teresa or my mom But here's the third question. I want you to name somebody who fits in both camps at the same time. Somebody supremely powerful and supremely good. Someone who is supremely powerful, claims to be supremely powerful, made a worldwide impact, is is a uh, uh, famous and, uh, and, and, and one who, who did things that are obviously miraculous and someone who did not live for himself or herself. The best answers he's gotten so far, he said, Abraham Lincoln, Gandalf, <laughs> and Superman. But he pushes back Gilson does and he says now wait a minute think about Abraham Lincoln he didn't emancipate the slaves till near the end of the war when we really needed it to finish the war pushed to do so by Christians but think about Gandalf his power would have been nothing without two little hobbits and think about Superman he didn't use all of his power always for other purposes he used his eyes sometimes to heat up his coffee There's only one person who fits both of those categories at the same time, supremely powerful and supremely good. It's Jesus. Supremely powerful, proven by uncontestable uh, miracles and supremely good. You never find a record of Jesus serving himself, using his power to do good ultimately to his demise and death. This is the Jesus presented to us in Zechariah. We said at the beginning of our study of Zechariah that there are few prophets who are more explicit. All Every Bible, every book in the Bible is about Christ, is pointing to Christ. You can't understand any passage of Scripture without Christ ultimately being the motivation or the empowerment of what we're called to do. Is the fulfillment of Scripture, Christ is. And here, and Zechariah is very clear about it. And here is a clear, transparent view of the coming Christ, one who is a king and a priest, prophet as well, one who is writing this to us. But in view are these two offices: king and priest. He is the king, first of all, in this image, in this dream. Uh, uh, the prophet or the uh, the, uh, the the servants are called to take from this offer of gold and silver and weave a crown and put it on the priest's head. A strange thing. We'll talk about that later. But it's put on this priest's head. It can't be on Zerubbabel's head. That's the one who would be likely the, the king. He's the governor. But he was of the cursed line of Jeconiah or Jehoiachin. We've talked about that before, we, you can look that up separately, because there was a curse on him, so that he said, no child of yours shall sit on the throne of David, because there's a curse on you. It couldn't be on his head, so they, they had to put the king's crown on the priest. The king. How does kingship prepare us for the coming Christ? Because Christ is the true king. In our Shorter Catechism, I've pointed you to on occasion. It's in on page 735 in, uh, in your hymnal. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says pithy uh, statements about the key points of our doctrine. And it asks this, how does Christ carry out or how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is Christ executeth the office of a king by subduing us to himself. By ruling and defending us. And by restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. Christ carries out the office of king in your life by subduing us unto himself. The Bible says that he intervenes in the empty way of life we were living. In First Peter and, and, um, and in uh, First Corinthians we, and Acts. We are, he intervenes and rescues us. He subdues us to himself. He doesn't, do, he doesn't do violence to our will. The Bible says he takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He replaces our will with a willing one that embraces him as our king. Acts chapter 5. He makes us willing to follow him, Psalm 110, verse 3. And he doesn't do it for just a a few people. He does it for an innumerable host, we know, from Revelation chapter 7. Christ is the king who subdues us unto himself. And then he rules and defends us. And that ruling is our liberation. It doesn't hinder a good life. He surrounds us with guardrails that, that lead us toward spiritual and human flourishing. He gives us the teaching of his word. And as we submit to it, as it's preached to us, as it's taught to us, as we submit to it, we find our freedom. It perfects us, 1 Corinthians 12. He he gives us people in our lives like elders who are able to intervene in our lives as well with shepherding and care and encouragement and exhortation and he says it's actually for our advantage that we find them ruling over us. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10. Looses, he uses the teaching of the word and the shepherding of the word to loose the bonds that are on us. Matthew 18 And then that ruling is not just one way. He includes us and makes us fellow rulers with him. We see that in verse 15 of our text. Those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. He not only rules over us, he makes us co-rulers so that we help him build the church, the kingdom that he is bringing to earth. He restrains all of our enemies, all his enemies. But putting his glory in our midst, chapter 2, verse 5. He dispatches his angels who encamp around us, Psalm 34. And he eagerly protects, we've already learned in chapter 2, the apple of his eye. That's us. We're blessed to have a king. And that king brings flourishing. I've been reading lately but just uh, the the uh, the history of human rights you know, it, 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 it struck me some time ago. How is it that we continue to talk you, almost universally about the existence of human rights? We, we talk about them as if everybody understands there are basic human rights. That, that just by being human, everyone uh, 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 who uh, is a person uh, uh, has certain rights to life and liberty and happiness and justice and dignity, and yet we deny that there is a God or we deny that the Bible has any, any uh, rule over us that Jesus is the Christ. How can those two go together? And it's very interesting that one of the things that is unraveling the kingdom of new atheism is this realization that there would be no human rights without Christ, without biblical faith, One man who has written on it uh, popularly of late is Tom Holland in his book, Dominion. I've heard a number of you reference reading that book and it is an incredible uh, book, uh, the story of how Christianity became a worldwide religion. Tom Holland, interestingly, is not yet a Christian. He doesn't profess Christ. He says he respects Jesus and his, he's warming up to him, but what he's doing intellectually is exploring how did this faith that centers itself around a cross, how has it become universally regarded throughout the world? Not always highly, but it's, it's recognized. How has, it, how has it become so? And one of the things that turned him was his study of Greek and Roman cultures. He, he was enamored with them since high school. He was, since childhood, he was enamored with the Greco-Roman world. And so he gave his best intellectual efforts to studying it. And at some point, he's become repulsed by it. The cruelty of the gods, the violence of the people it produces in the Greco-Roman world. And in his study of Greek and Roman culture, he kept bumping into Christianity that was the opposite, that while the Romans built their cities on the backs of the carcasses of the poor, Christians were dragging their bodies out of the heaps to give them dignified burial. Christians were saving little girls, little baby girls who were exposed because they the, They didn't want them to live. Christians were intervening on behalf of little boys. Christians were standing up for women's rights and their dignity. Christians were reaching the poor and the homeless, starting hostels and hospitals and orphanages. Had to conclude there would be no human rights. If there were no King Jesus, and if we're going to follow the King, we'll imitate him in that work, which takes us to the next office of priest. You can't separate them. He's a king and a priest and a prophet all at the same time. And that's the significance of the weaving together of the strands of gold and silver reflective of Revelation 19:12, the interwoven uh, crowns that will be on Jesus' head. He is a king, but he's a priestly king. And he's a kingly priest. His rule brings mercy. And his mercy will be triumphant. Again, our catechism helps us. The definition is Christ executes the office of a priest by his once offering up himself to satisfy a sacrifice, to satisfy divine justice, and is making continual intercession for us. He's a priest because of his offering. This priest is not one who just made sacrifices for us. He became the once for all sufficient sacrifice. That's what Hebrews is about that uh, in in chapter 9, chapter 10 of Hebrews, it says the priests, those human priests uh, day after day after day offered the same sacrifice, but Christ, once he offered himself the perfect sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God. There was no chair in the temple because the priest never could sit down. And now there's a throne upon which Christ is seated. The sacrifice is finished. He offers it for you. He says, come to me and rest. There is no other sacrifice. Once you've received Christ as a substitution for your sin, then there's no other sacrifice. There's nothing you can do to supplement it, to add to it, and quit trying to. Live freely in His mercy, His offering is finished. And now what remains is that he is making intercession for us. He is praying. And as he's praying for us, he is dispatching his angels to accomplish his will. And when we pray, we're jumping on his bandwagon. We're joining him in the triumph. Our dear, our dear Tim Russell, our precious pastor, and the Lord took from us in COVID, used to say, Let us join Jesus who is already at prayer. He never quits praying. And when we do pray, we just join his prayers. And he he allows us to participate in his work. It is a priestly kingship if we're going to imitate it. We'll use whatever powers, whatever influence... Whatever resources, whatever privilege we have to accomplish mercy for those who are being denied it. That's our response to a kingly priest. It is not to withdraw and wring our hands and be afraid. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Think about it. Something you would do if you were not afraid. The way you know that vision is given to you by the Lord is that it involves doing something gospel-like, sacrificial and surprising-like for those who can't stand up for themselves. Tom Holland says, when asked what he thinks it would take for Christianity really, to capture again the world's imagination, he said, it'll take Christians being weird again. They were just weird, he says, throughout the centuries in a way that was irresistible. One other point you have to get from this passage before we leave it, especially before we come to the Lord's Supper, and that is he is the man. He says, um, Zechariah does, Behold the man. Verse 12, Behold the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. He's not just a spiritual king, not just a spiritual priest. He is a human king and priest who still lives in a human body. He says to those disciples who, were, who saw him ascending, you will see him coming back just like that. What you can see of the Christ is human, but that doesn't contain all of the second person of the Godhead. All of the second person of the Godhead is behind the human Christ, and he lives to make intercession for us and to accomplish his will, and someday he will rule us in a visible way. The branch is the way he's referred to, or the vine, his his organic humanity is communicated that way throughout Scripture. Behold the man, God, it says effectively to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, there will be a man born of a woman who will crush the head of Satan. Behold the man, he says effectively to Abraham, there will be one born of you who will be king, not over, just over the Jews, but over all the nations. Behold the man, says Isaiah, He's going to be one like us, one whom we esteemed not, who was healed, has healed us by his stripes. Behold the man, says David, the one who will rule over a kingdom that is infinitely larger than mine. And then Pilate was forced to say, as Jesus was standing in front of him, behold, the man who is king, who is priest, and will undo all human kingdoms and all human religions and replace it with that true relationship only found between God and his people through Christ. What does it look like in a very practical, very, very practical way? This idea of seeing Jesus as king and as priest and then imitating him in kingly and priestly activity. I think we heard it alluded to by our friend Marcelo Robles. Some of you may have missed it in his sermon for us last Sunday in our missions conference. But this incredible story of his father, his father and grandfather, where Marcelo Robles is our our longtime friend and partner in Argentina, church planter, and he comes, he's a third-generation pastor, his grandfather, his father, faithful men of God, and his father was, was put in prison for preaching the gospel. His father tells the story of of, of, of being put in prison and they were, they were moving him from one cell to another, moving all the prisoners from one cell to another uh, because of, uh, of the uh, ba- the skirmishes going on. And, and uh, as he came out into the hallway where they're, they're moving from one place to another, he ran into a man who was shackled from head to toe and he said he looked like the Gadarene demoniac. This attempt to chain somebody up who was wild and uncontainable and he said, Dear Jesus, don't let me go into the same cell as that man. And of course, that's where he went. And so as Marcelo's father was in one corner of the cell praying, Dear Jesus, protect me. Dear Jesus, protect me. Dear Jesus, get me out of here. Dear Jesus, get me back to my family. There was a man, this, this crazy, wild, terrifying man in the other, in the dark corner, and then he says, he hears out of the darkness. At least you have a Friend. Marcelo's dad had to live into his confidence of Christ as his king. Joining Christ in prayer, he lived into the reality of that prayer that Jesus was his king, and he moved toward that man. He moved toward that danger, and he embraced him. And he said, My friend Jesus wants to be your friend too. That man, though later killed by his testimony of coming to Christ, opened the hearts of many others in Marcelo's dad's ministry to come to Christ too. And now there is this legacy of ministry that is not just evangelism, but mercy, too. What a privilege we have to serve this priest and king. And it is this one who, before he gave himself to the cross, instituted this supper... So that you would never forget that he is the priest who once offered himself up as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And who said, I will not personally take this again with you until we celebrate it together in the kingdom. In this supper, you find the mercy you need, and in this supper, you find the courage that you need to go toward the danger and bring that merciful kingdom to your next-door neighbor, to those in this city, and to the ends of the earth.